Well, good morning. Good to see each of you. And if you are our guest, we welcome you also and glad to have you with us. Uh, Please take your scriptures and turn to Psalm 46. 245 years ago, our forefathers declared independence and founded this nation on the principles of liberty, faith and freedom. Every time I travel internationally, I'm reminded of how blessed we are uh, to live in this particular country, in this nation, with its freedoms and its privileges that remain. And so my prayer is that God would continue to bless America, but even more than that, that Americans would turn to God and bow to Him as King and Savior, Lord and Savior. For some Americans, that means being Delivered from false messiahs, false saviors. It does mean repenting out of paganism or atheism. It does mean repenting from other false religions. It also means wondering if the diluted and perverted version of the gospel they've embraced is actually the saving gospel in Jesus Christ alone. So as we continue to pray for our nation, as Pastor Sean did, uh, we continue to pray for God's blessing on us as a nation Let us also be praying as America becomes more and more ungodly that Americans would trust Jesus Christ as their Savior and be delivered. It's a free gift of grace. It's so easy we can miss it. Uh, but, But many people aren't just missing it, they're rejecting it. So let us continue as a church to pray for the nation of which we are privileged to be a part of. Psalm 46 has been called Martin Luther's Psalm. Luther is well known for posting his 95 theses on the door of the church at Wittenberg. It was a castle church, large wooden door. And he posted those 95 points on that door on October 31st, 1517. What he did was he made public the abuses and unbiblical practices of the Roman Catholic Church. And he made it public. 64 years earlier, which is not a lot of time, in 1453, the city of Constantinople was conquered by the Muslim armies of the Turks. That's a critical point in history overall, but specifically for church history, because what that did is it caused the universities and schools of Constantinople to to be undone. Their doors were closed. And the scholars actually packed up their books and their belongings and they moved out of Constantinople because of Muslim domination. Actually, uh, the scholars had been moving for some time as Constantinople weakened and the Muslim powers became stronger. This is called in in church history and in Western history, the, the flight of the scholars. That flight, combined with the invention of the printing press, allowed these documents to basically go throughout the entire world. Within this birth of the Renaissance is what they call it. Renaissance simply means rebirth. And it's a period in Europe uh, that is the cultural bridge between the Middle Ages and modern history. So you have the flight of the scholars, you have the printing press, and you have two, you have more than two key characters, but there are two key characters that are sort of living in front of this backdrop of the Renaissance. One of those men is Erasmus of Rotterdam. He was known as the Dutch Renaissance humanist. He was a Catholic priest. He was also a teacher. He enjoyed the titles that were given to him, such as Prince of the Humanists. 
and has been called the crowning glory of the Christian humanists. He, too, was critical of the abuses within the Catholic Church. But as soon as he spoke out and was threatened by the ruling powers, he quickly took the side of the Roman Catholic Church and basically recommitted himself to them, though throughout the rest of his life hid behind a wall of humor. He was an incredible writer. What he ultimately did is suggest, in the face of Luther's teaching, a middle way, a compromised way. But in doing so, he rejected Luther's emphasis on faith alone. Of course, many of you know that's one of the one of the solas that comes out, one of the solas that comes out of the Reformation. Erasmus, interestingly, was exceptionally friendly with the Swiss Reformation of that time. But again, when threatened by excommunication by the Catholic Church, he quickly affirmed his faithfulness to the church, its traditions, its relics, its indulgences and its leadership. It's interestingly that it's interesting that Erasmus collected texts and copies of the Bible. And this is what Luther used to publish his first edition of a Greek New Testament because he thought it was very important that the, the word of God be made common to all people, not just be interpreted by the priests and the popes. Luther says this of Erasmus. Erasmus was like Moses. He could lead God's people to the border of the promised land, but he could not go in himself. He got that close to truth and faith, but in the end turned. Luther, from his youth, was deeply religious. He grew up under church teaching, spent most of his early years in mortal fear of divine judgment of the devil himself in hell. It seemed to put a darkness over everything that Luther did. When he was 22, he found himself in an incredible storm and a bolt of lightning threw Luther to the ground in an incredible fear because of God's divine judgment. In a fit of terror, he cried out, St. Anne, help me. I don't know if you've ever cried out to St. Anne for help or not. But it's misdirected and there's no help there. And then he said this, St. Anne, help me. I will become a monk. Well, he survived the thunderstorm, kept true to his word, and he went to an Augustinian monastery in Wittenberg, Germany. And he began what he calls the long road to the mortification of his own sin and personal fitness for the kingdom of heaven. That is a treacherous road, folks. If you think you can kill sin in yourself by your own power, and prepare yourself to be ready to meet God. Once in the monastery, Luther became what they call a monk's monk, devoting himself to the most rigorous forms of prayer, fasting, and work. Yet through all his efforts, he said he never escaped the paralyzing fear of divine judgment. He tried all the remedies that were recommended by the church and its leaders, even his leaders at the monastery, the other monks. He attended Mass. He venerated saints and relics. He made a pilgrimage to Rome. He even climbed the steps of Pilate's judgment seat, kissing every step for good measure as he went. Yet none of that alleviated the distress of his own heart. Luther was convinced that God was an awful judge waiting to condemn him. Actually, what Luther, he read something by another believer and it warned him of the dangers and the evils of the monastery. And what Luther discovered through that writing is that entering the monastery merely turned him from a sinful law student. He was studying to be a lawyer into a sinful religious person. 
But after the study of the books of Romans and Galatians, Luther was struck by the conclusion that God made his son who knew no sin to be a sin offering for him. And that Jesus Christ was Luther's substitute on the cross to bear the penalty of death that Luther deserved. And Christ died in his place. The guilt-ridden young monk now had a profound sense of God's forgiveness, not working anymore to merit his own salvation, but of free, unmerited grace. Once he was born again, he, had, he tried to reconcile his understanding with where he was with the organized church of indulgences and the worship of relics and of the high authority it had given to the Pope and its leaders. And that is what led Luther on October 31st to nail the 95 propositions on that door at the church at Wittenberg. There's too many details uh, with all the mandates and everything, but the two highest powers in Luther's life, Pope Leo X and Charles V, the emperor of Rome, both came in and issued mandates to him. They asked him to recant and declare that the pope and church councils could not make mistakes. While at court facing these charges of heresy, the prosecutor accused Luther of waffling and demanded a straight answer. This is his answer. Since your majesty and your lordships desire a simple reply, I will give an answer without horns and without teeth. Unless I am convicted by scripture and plain reason, I do not accept the authority of popes and councils, for they have contradicted each other. My conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot and I will not recant anything for to go against conscience is neither right nor safe. God help me. Amen. He said Luther was not perfect. Some of the things he wrote were not only just disappointing, but wrong. But he was a leader of the Reformation of reforming from false teaching into truth. And when times were desperate, when the opposition to truth appeared to triumph, when the cause that he was engaged in seemed to be undone, and when his friends of the Reformation were discouraged, this is what Martin Luther would say. Come, let us sing the 46th Psalm and let them do their worst. That's why this psalm has been called Luther's Psalm. The hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God, is based upon Psalm 46. It is the first of a trilogy. There are three psalms of triumph. Psalm 46, 47, and 48. And this is what they do. They instruct us as we sing in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in our hearts. They instruct us what to believe when our own heart and soul is faced with danger. The psalm is divided into three stanzas. We're going to look at it quickly. God's power over nature. God's power over nations and specifically God's power over a warring world. Look at Psalm 46, verse one. God is our refuge and strength. You can even hear a mighty fortress is our God. A very present help in trouble. Therefore, because of those truths, we will not fear, though the earth gives way. Though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. And then there's this little word in italics, Selah, which simply means pause, reflect, meditate. Don't rush past what you just read. 
It's interesting that the name for God, Elohim, will appear seven times throughout its 11 verses. When danger surrounds and stability seems to crumble, it is the mighty God, Elohim, that is the object of our trust. There is nothing mightier that you will face in this life than God himself. Elohim becomes refuge, strength, and a very present, not distant, but a very present help in trouble. It's interesting, now you have the mix of words. Even though in the book two of Psalms, Elohim is the primary name used for God, the name Yahweh is mentioned in verses 7, 8, and 11. And that reminds you that this mighty God is also a very personal Lord. He is not some distant, impersonal power. And then in verse 4, you'll see another title or name for God, and that is the Most High God. And there is none higher. There is one reference to refuge and two references to fortress. Of course, in Luther's day, there were castles. And on the impregnable side, which it was supposed of the castle, there was a bulwark, which was the big battle wall that would take all the, all the siege weapons and everything else. Of course, Luther's going to incorporate that word, a bulwark never failing. So Luther is thinking castles, but the scripture is talking about a refuge, and a fortress. Look at verse 2. Two words intended to communicate stability. Earth and mountains. But when they give way and move, okay, this is where this first section is going, we are tempted to be troubled. When the stability of the earth and the mountains are contrasted with the symbol of a raging and foaming sea, when stability becomes instability, what is our response? And our response is typically to fear and to question and to doubt. But if Elohim, the Almighty, the personal God, the Most High, is both shelter and strength, then worry and fear seem illogical and irrational in the light of those truths. So if you believe the, the truth of verse 1, then you can sing the response of verse 2 and 3. Look at verses 2 and 3. Therefore, remember, it's a song. Psalms are songs of praise because this is true. Verse two, we sing, therefore, we will not fear. And verse three, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling, meditate on that pause, reflect and think. Now, from the upheaval of nature, the psalm moves into the second part. As life does, it moves from nature to the raging of humanity. Look at verse 4. There is a river. Okay, contrasted with the, with the relentless and seeming foaming sea, now there is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. The nations rage, the kingdoms totter. He utters his voice, the earth melts. The Lord of hosts, the Lord of angelic armies is with us. The God of Jacob is our, and there's one of those uses, our fortress. And what's the next little word? Selah, pause, reflect, meditate. See, the waters here are no longer a raging ocean, but a life-giving and protective river that indicate the presence of God and a provision 
possibly of a besieged city, but there is a river that is providing its besieged inhabitants water. It's life. The seasons of life change. What was once a danger now becomes a balm. The river is actually helping the people of God. Look at verse 4. The city of God. That's a reference to Jerusalem. Whereas in verse 1, God himself was the source of protection. Now it's the city of God. The physical geographical presence of where God dwells among his people. And just as Psalm 45 mentioned, forever and forever and ever three times. This is probably giving you a picture future. Amidst all this trouble and amidst all this foaming water and destruction, we are actually given a future picture of a new Jerusalem, a future safety. Matter of fact, John will write this in Revelation 22. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. That's what Psalm 46 is doing. It's showing you that life will become unstable. Danger will surround. That which you found stability in will no longer provide trustworthy. But there is a future hope in the city of God. It says in this in verse 5, God is in the midst. He's preeminent among His people. He cannot be moved. By the way, that was used of mountains in verse 2, and now it is used of kingdoms tottering, mountains being undone and kingdoms tottering. But Jesus Christ, preeminent, will not be moved. I love this. Notice verse 5. For the second time, the word help appears, and it says, when the morning dawns. After a dark night or a season of darkness, God's deliverance becomes apparent at dawn. I love verse 6 where it says this. He utters his voice. The earth melts. And what is in focus there is he mentions this nations and kingdoms. In the first messianic psalm in the Psalter, Psalm 2, it says this, that the nations rage and plot an evil thing against God. Do you remember God's response in the heavens? It says the Lord is in the heavens. And what does He do? He laughs. It's not a scornful laugh, but it's almost like here you have all these nations down here trying to overthrow God and His King, which it says is His Son, the Messiah. And they're trying to undo the Messiah and kick God off His throne. And He simply Last, you know why he can do that? Verse six, because when he utters his voice, the earth simply melts. But you say, I don't see this. All seems hopeless. God seems silent. Well, God's word encourages you to wait for the morning. God will help her when morning dawns. Again, there's a Selah. Once again, there is a transition. And we move into the third section. And he moves into his power over a warring world. Look at verse 8. Come behold the works of the Lord. How he has brought desolations on the earth. He makes wars cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. Be still and know that I am God. Of course, interesting. That's that's what you have the little banners of on Facebook, right? And Instagram It's be still and know that he is God. Kitchen magnets. 
I don't know if people still use kitchen magnets right on their refrigerators. This is a framed picture with flowers all around it. That's not the context. The context here is, is God has made war against war. God has killed warfare. And in the light of that promise, China flexing its muscle, Russia proving to be the strong man it has always subtly been. It is you be still, Christian, and know this truth. Behold the works of the Lord, how he has brought desolations on the earth. He makes war cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. You could, re- you could read this. He decimates the most advanced fighter jet and he undoes every weapon, including tanks and weapons that you don't even know are out there yet. Why? Because when he speaks, the earth simply melts. So be still and know that he is God. He will be exalted among the nations. He will be exalted in the earth. Verse 11, the Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Selah. Pause. Reflect. This is an invitation for you to see with the eyes of faith what is the real reality behind the the facade of powerful nations. Come behold the works of of the Lord. You see, the outcome is peace, but the, the path to get there is judgment. Look at the following, verse 8. He has brought desolations on the earth. See, God will not be silent forever. He will rouse himself. He will not simply dialogue. He will forcibly disarm his enemies. And for the Christian, there is comfort in that as we look with the eyes of faith. In verse 9, he makes wars cease to the ends of the earth. There is peace on the other side of judgment. Verse 9, the very implements of war are taken away. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns chariots with fire. See, fear sees only destruction and devastation. But the eyes of faith in God and His Word sees beyond and above the battle fray to a world of peace who the Prince of Peace will inaugurate. This was already prophesied in Isaiah and Micah. Let me read to you those two passages. God as divine warrior and Lord of hosts will one day make war against war. Isaiah 2 verse 4. He shall judge between the nations and shall decide disputes for many peoples. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation Neither shall they learn war anymore. Isn't that a beautiful picture? In Micah 4, 3-5, the same one that prophesies the birth of the Messiah in Bethlehem. Before he makes that prophecy, he says this, He shall judge between many peoples and shall decide disputes for strong nations far away, and they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war any more, but they shall sit every man under his vine and under his fig tree, and no one shall make them afraid. For the mouth of the Lord, remember the mouth that melts nations, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. For all the peoples walk each in the name of its God, But we will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. Again, there's that future picture of unto us a child is born, 
Unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be what? The mighty God, the Prince of Peace, wonder of a Counselor, the Everlasting Father. As we meditate on these comforting truths, what does the psalmist admonish us to do? Verse 10, be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. You can almost hear Philippians 2. At the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. See, this is not primarily intended as a comfort for those oppressed. Oftentimes, oppressed believers are still in look to the Lord. But it's a rebuke to the restless, to the busy, to the fearful. It's a needed word for us in Centennial Littleton Highlands Ranch because we are people of commotion. We are anxious. We often don't listen well. We seek our identity in our activity, right? We compare schedules and itineraries and plans and accomplishments, and we hold one another accountable to 15-minute time slot segments. We seek the sounds and the activities of the marketplace, the mall, and the city. Honestly, stillness has become very foreign to many American people. And it doesn't mean we're not weary. You can be busy and tired. You can be busy about good stuff and be weary and put yourself in a very dangerous place. So to be still means this, to refrain from anxiousness, to stop talking nervously, to refuse to be distracted by the movements and sounds not only around us, But within us, the noise and the chatter of our own heart, it means there must be times when we turn off the social media and the music and the texting and the gaming and the posting and the pitting and the tweeting and the chatting and the tick-tocking. To be still and to know that He is God. During our announcements, one of our elders, Steve Kubik, will explain a sabbatical they are providing for Tony and me based upon this very principle. Stillness, rest, renewal, quietness. To be still is to stop and to know God's lordship over nature, over history, over warring nations, and to trust Him as protector. To trust Him evil when, even when evil befalls us and danger surrounds us. Let me give you an example. The New Testament provides an incredible example of this in Mark chapter 4, in which case you will see glimpses of Psalm 46 with the raging and foaming waters and the danger that surrounds. In Mark chapter 4, it says this, And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat so that the boat was already filling Okay, the lake here becomes a classroom. The storm is the curriculum and their teacher is doing what? Remember the story? He's sleeping. It says this in verse 38 of Mark 4, but he was in the stir and asleep on the cushion and they woke him and said to him, teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? Their fear of the storm And of the stability they had once trusted in becoming undone caused them to assume something about Jesus that was never true of Jesus. And that is that he didn't care for them. Panic turned to irritation. Irritation turned to accusation. 
And you know, really, that is true of us, too, isn't it? That oftentimes our frustration, irritation and anger simply expose our own fearful heart. We don't like being out of control. And what we don't realize is that we've never ultimately been in control anyway. For God is the high one who is lifted up. Verse 39, it says this. And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, peace, be still. It's a very gentle translation. It is actually be muzzled or stop. And the wind ceased. And there was a great calm. The creator who was asleep gives a command and nature listens. Psalm 46, 1 through 3. The disciples wrongly rebuked their Lord and now their Lord rightly rebukes them. In verse 40, he says this. He said to them, of course, you can just listen, listen to it. The, the storm has stopped. It's calm. But you can still hear the water dripping off the edges of the boat into the water and everything is quiet. And Jesus says to them, he doesn't say, why are you so angry? He goes right down to the very heart of the matter. And he says, why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? Be still and know that he is God. He will be exalted among the nations. He will be exalted in all the earth. Do you know that circumstances, difficult circumstances, are not given to test and cause us to be broken and fail. They're given to try us and to grow us. Again, with a repetition of the refrain of verse 7, Psalm 46 closes this way. The Lord of hosts, the God of Jacob, is our fortress. Do you know that the very worst manifestations of chaos and evil are merely a temporary threat? Here's why. Because Hebrews 1 says this. You, Lord, laid the foundations of the earth in the beginning. And the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. Like a robe, you will roll them up. Like a garment, they will be changed. But you are the same, and your years will have no end. That is why believers have the firmest and surest of all foundations in the world. And it is Jesus Christ who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And he will never fail you. So be still, believer, and understand that God is sovereign over nature. Be still, believer, and know that God is sovereign over nations. Our nation and every other nation. And be still and know that God is sovereign over a warring and conflicted world. And take time to behold Him. And bow to his lordship and kingship. Martin Luther's doctrine was condemned by two of the most powerful men in Europe. He was given 40 days to return home, after which time anybody could turn him in to the authorities and he would be burned alive at the stake. Luther knew that when he, re, when he did not recant what Pope Leo X asked him to recant. Without Luther's knowledge, his prince, Frederick the Wise, rightly named, made plans to basically kidnap and protect Luther by taking him to his own castle, Frederick's castle at Wartburg, there to spend the next year in hiding. Even though struggling with deep depression, according to Luther himself, he managed to be an extraordinary writer. While at Wartburg, he wrote many significant works, 
including a German translation of the Bible that is still celebrated for its precision and elegance of the language. What a lot of people do not know, however, is that while Luther was there, he underwent severe psychological and spiritual attack. Over and over, facing mental challenges, hearing voices, and trying to overcome his conscience, his own voice would tell him this, Are you really the one who knows truth? Are you wiser than all those who have been trained and serve in the Catholic Church? Who are you to stand against so many wise and learned men? And of course, this led him into the spiritual challenge of his own sin. Because this is what happens when you come out of highly structured, rhythmic religion, is that what is removed, and according to Luther, he says this, having removed all of the church's accepted means of responding to sin, penance, the mass, the, the, the symbols of, of Christ's broken body and shed blood, as actual means of grace, those having been removed, he was left with nothing to fall back on except, I want you to hear this, Jesus Christ alone. This, he believes, is what opened him up to such incredible distress and intense spiritual attack, including visions which he believed were, were from the devil himself. Sinful vexation of conscience and voices which challenged him at his weakest moments. And in one case, in desperation, he took his little ink bottle where he was writing and he threw the ink bottle at the voice. And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear for God hath willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fell him. But not without a battle, and not without a fight, and not without a struggle. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore we will not fear. The Lord of hosts is with us. God is our fortress. Be still and know that I am God. The Lord of hosts is with us. God is our fortress. I want to invite our music team to come forward. Psalm 46, like Luther's hymn, is a celebration of the sovereign power of God over all earthly and spiritual forces. This hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God, was sung in the streets. It was heard and probably sung by another church history character called Melanchthon, he was the first systematic theologian of the Protestant Reformation. It was heard and probably sung by Elizabeth Crusiger, a German writer and the first poet, female poet and hymn writer, close friends with Luther, side by side with him in the Protestant Reformation. This hymn was sung by emigrants on their way into exile, and it was sung out loud by martyrs at their death. David Mathis said of this hymn, the song embodies with strength and gusto the very spirit of the Reformation, breaking free from the placidity and poverty of medieval theology with rich God confidence. The monument to Luther at Wittenberg has the first line of the lyrics engraved on its base, A mighty fortress is our God. God is our refuge and strength, the very present help in trouble. And what, what Luther does, you'll see this as we sing the hymn, 
is he goes from generalities of Psalm 46 to the specifics of a divine rescuer in Jesus Christ himself. So when you sing it, sing with your understanding, but sing with your heart also, 1 Corinthians says. And we will sing to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Let's pray.